wound up in Ezekiel 40 through 48, showing how that is an end-time passage and how that very, very likely that is the final temple that will be erected on this earth before Christ returns and he and the Father become the temple of the new Jerusalem. So uh, it's the only temple in the Bible and in history that has never been attempted to be built by anyone at any time. And we don't have much time left, as I think we'll probably get into today, uh, for this to be done. So it is an imminent thing that Ezekiel 40 through 48 be fulfilled. Now, I want to go back to the thought that I had there toward the end of the sermon. You know, in a sermon, you don't have time to cover all the bases. You you can't relive 6,000 years of history to bring you up to a certain point so that something is clear. Uh, you, you can't, in other words, review the whole Bible in an hour, hour and 15 minutes every time. And uh, I may have left a couple loose ends yesterday that could have concerned us, but I'd like to explain it uh, more from a New Testament perspective. I did show there that the priests are going to be held to a very high standard in the final temple, and that those who may have been in the ministry who were not as loyal and faithful as they should be are going to be performing uh, duties in the temple pretty much commensurate to what a deacon might do. And those who had been faithful and true would be doing the heavier lifting of the more spiritual things and and so on. Uh, So God makes a difference. And even in the New Testament, if you go into First Timothy, uh, and it gives some qualifications for the ministry, it mentions that a, a minister has to be the husband of one wife. Now, in the Old Testament, God had allowed polygamy uh, because of the hardness of hearts. As Christ said in Matthew 19, in the beginning, it was not so. He intended Adam and Eve to be a couple and... No divorce, no nothing except death do you part. Uh, One man, one woman is what he intended because it is a type of a family with the kids together. But they had hardness of heart and he allowed uh, polygamy. So when the New Testament church started, there were areas in the world, uh, apart from Israel, who were polygamous. And... I think that is what Paul was addressing there when he said, uh, there may be among you people who have more than one wife, but to be a minister, it can be a man who only has one wife. Now, we faced that in worldwide some decades ago. Going into Africa and perhaps some other parts of the world, we found areas that uh, people were being called in a polygamous society. And Mr. Armstrong had to make a decision on what church policy would be. Now, I recall that some evangelists uh, had the opinion that since God intended one man, one woman, that uh, if a man came into the church and had three, four, five wives, whatever, that uh, they should, he should dump all but the first wife out in the street with her kids. And not take care of her anymore because he should only have one wife. 
they didn't really stipulate that it would have to be the first one. I guess they assumed he'd just pick out his favorite and dump the rest. Uh, I think Mr. Armstrong came up with a much more judicious thing or decision, and that was that you keep the ones you have, but you don't get any more because you do have women there who are dependent upon that man and children who are dependent, and why break up the family? And I think that's exactly the decision that Paul had made there, and it conforms to Scripture in saying that probably don't get any more, uh, but keep the ones you have. But a minister could only have one because he needed to be an example to the rest of the flock that that's the way God intended it. And I think that that's what he intended here, even in Ezekiel 42 through 48, that the ministry had to be at a very high standard. And as I read to you, the high priest could only marry a virgin, no widow, no, not anybody, but someone who had not been married before at all. Uh, then we went on to Ezra and Nehemiah to show the pattern, uh, first of all to Solomon, how him getting many wives uh, caused him to stray from God. Then in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they had married into the Gentile nations, and they were required to get rid of any wives and children that came from those marriages into the Gentile world that weren't Israelites. Now, I didn't go on beyond that because I was trying to make the point of God having a pattern, and never is the pattern exactly the same. Uh, there'll be something back in history that was done a certain way, and something similar will be done in another era, and something similar in yet another. But it's never exactly the same circumstance with exactly the same type of people. I mean, look at, uh, for instance, John the Baptist. Uh, he was, in the pattern, a type of the Elijah that had been. Now, there were some similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist. Both of them were apparently outdoors types and uh, so on. But uh, Elijah and John the Baptist had different personalities. And the end-time Elijah will have a different personality than either of those two. For instance, John the Baptist, Christ said, was the most righteous man ever at that point. Now, the end-time Elijah, it says that he was filthy. <laughs> so, they may be fulfilling a similar role, but a totally different person. See what I mean? So, we can't take something from Ezra and say, okay, now, we're going to have to go through all this and half the congregation are going to have to separate. The New Testament modifies this considerably. In ancient Israel, the covenant was made between blood Israelites and God, and all Gentiles were left out. Okay? And therefore, you couldn't mix Jew and Gentile. There were times God allowed it to some degree, and there were times that he put a stop to it. Just like he allowed polygamy, but at times he put a stop to it. 
Now let's fast forward to the New Testament. He's made a covenant with those who will become converted to his way and to his law. And you have a dichotomy there where it is no longer Jew or Gentile, but converted or unconverted. That's the only difference. Paul even wrote that in Christ there is no Jew or no Greek. Translate that, no black or no white if you want to. But no Gentile uh, and Jew, or no Israelite, non-Israelite. So, Paul made it very clear in his ministry, and so did Peter, not to call any man common or unclean, that all could be part of the church of God, and race didn't matter. Paul even went so far as to say they're neither Jew, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. Now, I look today and I see those who appear male and those who appear female. In the world out there, it's getting a little cloudy at times, but you look basically male and female here to me. Well, Paul wasn't talking about our physical uh, gender. He was talking about spiritual uh, delineation, I guess, of the word I'm looking for. So there's only two, converted and unconverted. And Gentiles of any color or race are allowed within the church of God to have the exact same uh, reward as any other. So God doesn't make a difference on what our blood is anymore. It's nothing. The other thing he said was circumcised or uncircumcised. He says it doesn't make any difference anymore. Because that was something that made it distinguished between a Jew and a Greek, or an Israelite and a, and a Gentile with circumcision. So he says that's no longer there. He says circumcision is nothing. doesn't mean a thing spiritually. So... It comes down not to Jew and Gentile anymore, but to converted or unconverted. Now, Paul made it very clear that you can be, if God calls one member of a family or of a couple into the church, that you can remain married to that one that he is not calling. And as long as you get along in that unconverted mate allows you to obey God and serve Him, you can continue in the marriage and be mates. But he said, if the unconverted mate fights you and won't let you obey God and restricts you and won't let you go to the feast and threatens to kill you if you keep the Sabbath, you know, uh, won't let you worship God in peace, that you have the option of divorcing that mate and remarrying even. You're not bound to them. You could even remarry, but only in the faith. You don't shed one mean unconverted person and marry another nice unconverted person. That's restricted. You can only marry another converted person. So, I cannot see in any way that God would line us all up and say, you're Israelite and you're... African or you're Chinese, you got to separate. No. 
It isn't the same situation as Ezra and Nehemiah at all. Now, the pattern is the same, okay? God wants us to separate converted from unconverted. In other words, the church is to come out from her, my people, and separate from her. And if we're friends of the world, we're enemies of God. So he makes a division between those whom he's working with and those whom he is not. But he made an exception in there that if you're married to someone who is not part of the church formally, you can stay with them as long as they let you worship God in peace. And there's not a problem. He's not going to change what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. He made an exception, and he's going to live by it and stick to it. But he's going to hold the ministry to a stronger standard in the temple, in the service of the temple. Because there's a direct relationship there and type between the Father and the Son and the high priest and or Moses and Aaron, if you will. So I wanted to explain that, lest we all pick up our skirts and run screaming into the desert. Uh, God isn't going to require us because of race or anything else, even conversion, to separate. And I think that there will be somewhat of a mixed multitude even who come. Uh, God stirs the remnant to come. Sometimes a mate may come along who's not part of the church. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. Now, there's going to be some separation again uh, when it's time to flee from Jerusalem to Zion when the abomination is set up. And some may say, well, not me, it isn't time, or whatever. Or there'll be something so precious in the house they got to run back and get it. Cat, dog, banky, teddy bear, who knows? Their favorite cup, something they can't live without that they run back in and ignore Matthew 24, and they're just a little late and get caught. Who knows? I've always said if you didn't have the right attitude and you took off, you'd probably break a leg and get caught anyway. <laughs> just, my, just my thought. Can't prove that one one way or another. We, we have to speculate Bible from speculation and what God really says from some of the ideas that we think might fit Scripture, which may or may not. That was the way it was with Gerald Waterhouse. He, he made all kinds of statements about the way it would be in the millennium, didn't he? And I would sit there and say, well, that one makes sense. And I'd hear another one say, that one doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And a lot of people would sit there and be negative and criticize the man because they said, you can't prove that. That's not true. Well, give us some freedom to draw a picture. You know, an artist paints a picture, and there are a lot of brush strokes there until you get to the final picture. Some of those brush strokes may be really good ones, and some of them may be an error, and some of them get painted over. But he was trying to draw a picture of how the millennium would look. Now, every brush stroke he made or every analogy or every detail he gave may not have been correct. 
So it didn't bother me that he was trying to paint a picture, and some of it was speculative, yes, but it was based on Scripture, and I was trying to get a better understanding and vision of what things would be like out of what he was doing as he painted the picture. But people would look at the brush strokes and throw him out. I think that was the wrong way to approach it. In any given sermon, I'm going to tell you things that are, thus saith the Lord, right here, black and white. And I'm also going to, on some things, interject a little speculation, or even occasionally my own opinion. And I'll try to tell you when that is. You know, I may not always, but I try to. So let's understand that there's a great deal of difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that the pattern may be somewhat the same, because ultimately isn't God going to make a judgment on whether you're in the kingdom or not? You're part of the church, been baptized, formerly part of the church, but some of us may not make it. Daniel 11 says some of them of understanding will fall. Some will not endure to the end. Some may go into the lake of fire. I hope not many, and I hope it's not you or me, but God is going to have to make a final judgment on all of us, so he will separate the clean from the unclean, ultimately, spiritually speaking. So what our status is today doesn't really make a whole lot of difference, except that if we're going to follow him, we need to depart from the ways of the world. And when we come into the church, if we're married, uh, then he, he tells us, remain as you were. If you're married, stay married. If you're not married, don't get married. If you're at the end of the age, and there are more important things than marriage, by far. So he says, whatever state you come in, forget about all that. Just follow God. Serve God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. That's what he says. And that's Scripture. So... There's lots of advice in there, and, I, and again, I can't go in the time I have today into every little ramification of what I'm talking about right now. There isn't time. Other things need to be covered, uh, partially because of the day we're in, and partially because I want to go on to a little bit more in terms of, of the subject that we've been discussing. How do we get from here to there? And I may not even finish that today. I want to save a few comments, at least at the end, for meat in due season as to why we really are here on this day. Uh, I've been preempted by the song leader and the prayer guy and, you know, a little bit already saying it's a resurrection at the end of billions of people. Well, that's essentially it, and uh, it's okay. Maybe I ought to just do that right now, and then I don't do it at the end. Let's go to Revelation 20. I can come back to this other. So I wanted to finish up some comments about yesterday and then get on to another aspect of it. But here in chapter 20, uh, Christ lays hold on Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into uh, a bottomless pit and shut him up so he could not deceive the nations anymore till a thousand years should be fulfilled. After that, he must be loosed a little season. Now, God promised us, and he promised Satan, 6,000 years. Now, 
it may get cut short a little bit. Christ said, if I don't cut things short, there'll be no flesh saved alive. So I assume from that he intends to cut it a bit short. I don't think he's going to cut uh, the tribulation short. It's stated three ways as being uh, a certain amount of time. Now, the seven last plagues are to go on for about a year. And it isn't until the seven last plagues, after all the destruction that has already occurred up until then, it isn't until then that all life is threatened, because that's the last act. That's the last plague and trouble that comes, is the seven last plagues. So, it would appear that might be cut short some, so there will be some people left. But if he cuts it short by a month or two or six whatever, then he owes Satan a little more time. So he's going to be bound, and God's fair. He's not going to cut anybody short. He's not slack concerning his promises. Peter made that clear. So if he binds him a thousand years, and he isn't loosed until uh, that thousand years is completed, he's loosed a little season. And I suspect it'll be the same amount of time as the 6,000 years that he had that got short, cut short by a month or two or three. He won't have long, just a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the sons of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, nor had received his mark upon their foreheads, are in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's the first fruits, 144,000 of them that live and reign with him. Now, we used to read this and think, well, the mark of the beast is going to come someday. wonder when it'll be. And there was no appearance of any such thing anywhere. A little different today, isn't it? They're talking about digital money, and you've got to have this chip, this digit, in your digit, or in your forehead, or wherever. And by that, they can tell if you've been vaccinated or not, whether you've been positive for whatever the flavor of the moment is or not. And then they will also include in there, oh, well, we might as put in here, instead of having to use these plastic credit cards and cash, we might as well just put a chip, and then you just go like that, and you pay. And we deduct it from your chip in your hand or your head, maybe you give it that, and you paid your bill. And God says, don't do that. You've accepted the mark of the beast. I read an article just a day or two ago, which said, now, you know the, the Fed, which is a private banking consortium uh, that prints and loans money to the U.S. government for interest, a private corporation, they quit producing coins a few months ago. So what coins we got or what we're stuck with, there won't be any more. They'll have to start rounding it out off to the dollar because nobody will have coins. Besides that, they're filthy and they got CB-19 on them. So let's get rid of them. Well, they just announced, I think it was yesterday or the day before, apparently, and I, I read the supposedly the tweet from them, that now they're going to quit making cash. Pretty soon... There won't be any, you know. Bills get torn, bills get lost, bills get burned. They disappear. 
or they go in under somebody's mattress, but they disappear. And they're not going to make any more. Well, then what? We'll run out of money. And they'll have to come up with some digital money. That's what they're planning. I've read enough about it that that's what's going on. It's here. Once you start making the money, it's here. Just today it was announced that the government's going to raise the price on silver coins by 25% in five, five days from now. And that means the price of silver is going to go up uh, considerably. They didn't say on everything they make that's silver, but on the, the, the beautiful, extra pretty ones that they put in a little box, uh, they're going to raise them 25%. But that's, that's only starters. That's getting the door open, and then it's going to go crazy. It's going to go crazy. If you're going to buy silver or gold, you should have already done it. <laughs> Put it that way. If, it, if even it will do any good, ultimately it probably won't. Because they'll outlaw cash, or cash will just disappear. There won't be any anymore. And uh, silver and gold, they'll probably outlaw and tell you to turn it in. They tried that in the Depression. So you'll either have that ship, or you won't buy and sell. Period. Do you have enough saved up to take care of you for how long? You won't be able to buy and sell. These you can't go to. Walmart you can't go to. Costco you won't be able to go to. They'll shut it down. If you don't have that chip, you don't buy. You ready for that? How prepared are you for that? How soon is God going to intervene and provide food for you? And much men and cattle there and take care of us. I don't know how long. But this thing is imminent now. It's, it's appearing. It's not just something you read about in a old book. It's here. And it'll get more and more so, and then it will get instituted quite soon. Anyway, I was reading this, and I got sidetracked. Uh, don't take the mark of the beast. But the rest of the dead, the 144,000, are resurrected or changed when Christ returns at the trumpet. And the rest of the dead don't live until the thousand years were finished. So this is the first resurrection. Resurrection of the saints when Christ returns. 144,000. They live and reign with him a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed for a little while. And also, if he cuts that 6,000 years a little short, the seven last plagues, uh, mankind will have been cut short as well as Satan, right? So it appears that he's going to cut the millennium a little bit short to give mankind the rest of his 6,000 years, be it a month or two or three, whatever it is, and give Satan the same amount of time. So, at the end of the millennium, it says, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. 
And they went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So it says when the thousand years are expired, does it mean completely? And then there's a little more time uh, granted. I don't know for sure. It might be that he cuts the thousand short. But then on the other hand, if he's promised a thousand years, maybe it means the thousand years will be complete, totally expired, and then he'll let it go on for a month or two or whatever he's cut it short. I would think that might be more the way it would be done. But these people will have Satan turn loose on them, and it's a very short period of time. Look how fast Satan can work on the minds of men. People who have been in the millennium and lived in the peace of God with the Father and the Son in the holy Jerusalem and the temple of it, and there's been a beautiful thousand years Satan's turned loose, and almost like that, he deceives billions of people, probably. And they come up against God in the camp of the saints. And God wipes them out with fire and brimstone. And the devil that deceived them, they're deceived, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, it should say, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Their spirit, and they will receive eternal torment. The beast and the false, false prophet will not. They were cast there, and they get burned up and gone. And it's after that then that we see a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no found no place for them. And then he saw the small, the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The books would be the Bible. It's what we're all judged by. Written, they're judged by the things written in all the books of the Bible. And the book of life to see if during the life that they had led, they had been recorded in the book of life. Now, all those in the first resurrection, 144,000, have their names written in the book of life, those who will live, the ones sealed by God to continue to live. Then the people in the great white throne judgment will come up. They'll be given a period of time to live. It's, the Bible does not say how long it is. Isaiah 65 is not talking about the great white throne judgment. Uh, wait a minute, did I say that wrong? Let me go back and review it. I suddenly confused myself. Uh, Isaiah 65. This is the one we used to show that the great white throne judgment was a hundred year period. And that's not what it's talking about. Yeah, I, I had it right. Uh, he says, Behold, in verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And some had formulated the theory that since God is going to burn up the earth, they read in Isaiah 24, 
that it will become a charred ember and nothing left of it. It will go up in smoke. But Isaiah 24 doesn't say that. Ellen G. White espoused that, and she was wrong because Isaiah 24 says few men left, and not all destroyed. So that theory that the earth is all going to be burned up and then this resurrection is going to occur and the new heavens and new earth come then is wrong. Because they say when the new heavens and new earth come, no humans will be left. They'll either all be turned to spirit or burned up. And this is the scripture we used to try to prove that. But if you go on down and read it, he says, I create Jerusalem and her people, people, still human beings, a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Now you say, well, that just means people turn into spirit. No, it doesn't. Uh, it says, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses, and inhabit them, and plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. This is human beings who are still alive in the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and new earth come when Christ brings the new Jerusalem down at the beginning of the millennium. That is the new heavens and the new earth. And a baby will live to be a hundred years old, and an old man will live to be a hundred years old, and they'll be judged on their life. Okay? They shall not labor in vain, verse 23, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. And I'll answer, even if they're still speaking, and the wolf and the lamb will dwell together like Isaiah 11 in the new heavens and the new earth. Going down to the end of chapter 6, <clears throat> he's talking, verse 22, about the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make. They'll remain before me, and it shall come to pass. In the new heavens and new earth, verse 23, from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh, <clears throat> not spirit, come to worship before me, says the Eternal. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. So the new heavens and the new earth are here. People are still here. Flesh is still here. And though each person will be living to a hundred years of age. That's talking about the millennium. He'll give people in the millennium, whether they were a baby when it started or an old man when it started, they'll all be given a hundred years to be judged by Christ and his bride. So the hundred-year period is during the millennium. So we don't have any idea how long the great white throne judgment will last. Now, I will speculate, because the Bible doesn't say, if God gives the people in the millennium a hundred years, does it make sense that he would give those who are resurrected in the great white throne judgment a hundred years? That would seem to be the most logical. If he does it for one, he might do it for the other. But I don't have a scripture to prove that. So when we say the great white throne judgment will last a hundred years, or used to, we didn't know that. 
We still don't know that because the book just doesn't say. He does say they will come alive. And this is talking about from Adam until uh, the end of this age. All the people who have never had a chance at salvation will be resurrected. Whether they were aborted babies, whether they were died when they were a day old, or whether they were 963 years old before the flood, if they've not had a chance at salvation, they are going to be raised up to physical life and be given a period of time to prove whether they will obey God or not. So God's plan is to give everybody who has ever lived a chance at salvation. Everybody. Nobody gets two chances, but everybody gets one chance. Now, judgment is now on the house of spiritual Israel. You and I, if we're converted, this is our chance. We won't get another one. When Christ returns, will it be changed or we won't? Now, all these other people that have lived, they've been in all kinds of religions, or babies never had any religion at all. How are they going to be judged? Well, it can't be. You can't judge a day-old baby by these books. It can't happen. So he's got to give them a period of time, and the books are open, and they're judged by them. It says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead, the grave, the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Well, an aborted baby doesn't have any works, nor does a five-day-old have any works. So they have to be given a period of time to show their works and whether they fit the books or not. So God will be able to find everybody who's ever lived. He's recorded every one of them. And he will raise them up. It doesn't matter whether they went into the sea and became shark poop and scattered all over the ocean. He can find them and bring them back to life. Everybody. So that everyone who's ever lived has a chance. And I include aborted babies or miscarriages. Uh, Herbert Armstrong at one time thought that you had to draw the breath of life to be counted in this. Uh, I disagree, and I think he came to disagree as well with what he had originally said. Because if you're not going to be resurrected and become a person unless you breathe the breath of life and were born, <coughs> then that makes abortion okay. But if God counts them as human beings from the moment they're conceived forward, they're going to be resurrected, and abortion is murder of a human being. <coughs> and I think that's what he means. <coughs> there again, I'm partially speculating. But I think it's based on God's fairness, and I don't see any way on earth that you can't call an abortion a murder. Anyway, they'll be judged. That way, there will be those who were judged during this lifetime who were called and died. Like the apostles, the early church, David, Moses, and so on. They had their chance, and Hebrews 11 says they'll be in the kingdom. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that anybody 
has been judged to go into the lake of fire. Not even Esau or Judas. Nobody. Solomon doesn't say they're lost. Judas wasn't converted. Esau wasn't converted. Did they have some relationship with Christ in the Old Testament? Yes. Did they have the did the ones in the New Testament have a relationship with him? Yes. Judas even took the bread and the wine. But he wasn't converted. And neither were the disciples. Christ said after that, when you are converted, feed my sheep. They weren't converted until Acts 2, when they were given the Spirit of God. So, the relationship with Christ is what's important all the way through. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He's the one that gives the names to the Father, which is another really good, powerful proof that Christ was the God of the Old Testament. He was the Melchizedek of the Old Testament. Without a relationship with Christ himself, none of the patriarchs could be in the kingdom of God. This one God stupidity has to go. There are two in the family of God and always have been. And Colossians makes it very clear that without Christ, nothing was made that was made. He was the God of the Old Testament who did the creation. And he's the one that worked with Adam and Eve, his creation, and all the rest all the way through. The Father is not the Savior, He is not the Redeemer, He is not the older brother, Christ is. And if you don't have a relationship with Him, you don't have a relationship with the Father. So He had to have been the God of the Old Testament in order for those men back there, and women, Rahab, to be part of the first fruits. Hebrews 11. So let's be clear. Herbert Armstrong was absolutely right about Melchizedek, and the book of Hebrews proves it beyond any shadow of a doubt. Okay, everybody gets a chance, and it'll be in that period of time after the millennium when Satan is bound and the great white throne is set, and all these people, billions of them, will be resurrected and have a period of time, be it a hundred years or a thousand years, or whatever God has determined. I would guess a hundred years based on how long people live in the millennium. But that's, I can't prove that. And it may not be that, but I suspect it is. So let's just leave it at that. And that's what this day pictures. It's kind of tacked on to the Feast of Tabernacles. The plan of God is completed when 7,000 years are completed. But you have this backlog of people who lived during that 7,000 years who still need to be dealt with, so he tacks an extra day onto the feast to deal with them. So they were part of the 7,000, okay? And so they're included in that 7,000-year plan, but there couldn't be a judgment made on them because they didn't have any works. So at the end of the millennium, God's plan is essentially complete, and they, but these people have to be dealt with. So the tacked-on day to give them an opportunity to join the rest. And it is during that time 
that Paul is speaking of in Romans 11:26 when he says all Israel shall be saved because there've been an awful lot of Israelites born who never have known God at all. They may have been in any kind of religion or no religion or didn't live long enough to know God. But they got to have a chance because they were one of the children of God. And he'll give all his kids a chance. Every last one of them. And that's what this day is about. Is their chance. Now, what time is it? I'm already almost out of time. Where does it go? Well, there's not enough time to get into this other aspect I wanted to today. That's okay. We needed to know about the great white throne judgment, since we're living it today as a type of what is to be for your relatives, for your friends, for your aborted babies, for your miscarriages, for everybody to have a chance. Now, some of my family were in the church. And some of my family were in the church, but I doubt were ever converted. And aren't today some of my cousins. Maybe their chance is yet ahead. And those whom you have known, and some of your relatives, their chance is still ahead. So, God and Satan are not fighting a battle right now for the souls of men in that sense. Because God is going to take care of all these people after Satan is bound and forgotten about. They'll have their chance under good conditions. No Satan, and the 144,000 and Christ himself there as their Redeemer and Savior to recommend them to the Father for eternal life. And in that same context in Romans 11, I meant to mention this, it's not just all Israel shall be saved, but it is that chapter, Romans 11, which also talks about the Gentiles being grafted in and having their opportunity at salvation as well. So the dead, small and great, black and white, yellow, green, and pink, will all come up at once and have their chance. And it won't just be almost all of Israel that will be saved. It will be also almost all of the Gentiles as well. They'll have the same amount of time, same opportunity, and it'll be like today. There's no Greek nor Jew, male nor female, circumcised or uncircumcised. We're all one in Christ. And everybody will be given the exact same opportunity. And I think Jew, Gentile, it won't matter what you were racially. It'll be what you as a human being do. You'll either obey God or you won't. And you'll be judged by these books this book so this day represents a time on a personal level when all those you've known and are related to and been your friends or your mates or whatever who may not have been converted in this life and had their chance now are going to get it later God is totally fair everybody gets a chance from Adam all the way through they get one chance and in some ways, they'll have a better chance than you and I do. You and I are here trying to accomplish true Christianity in service of God and His Son. 
in a world beset by Satan, in a world that is utterly carnal and satanic, and has no value in the laws of God, but everybody doing their own thing, and full of every kind of sin that is imaginable and perversion on top of it. That's the world we are having our chance in. It's tougher. Their chance in the millennium, everybody will be at peace. You start to do something wrong, you'll hear a voice behind you and a tap on the shoulder. Uh-uh. Don't do that. So you won't. Those people are going to have it a lot easier than you and I do. And after what we've been through, we'll be very happy to help them make it. Because we'll have the love of God and we'll want them to all obey and be part of the kingdom of God. We'll be so happy there that we'll want everybody to share it. And when it comes to the great white throne judgment, all those people through history will be there. And all those people you always wondered about when you read the history book, what were they really like? There they'll be. And you'll be able to say, Hi, Hitler. We're going to do things different now. You won't say, Hi, Hitler. You'll say, Hi, Hitler. Glad to see you got dirt in your hair. I think it's time here you think a little differently. He hasn't had his chance at salvation. Hitler's not condemned. God isn't that way. His mama taught him something, and he forgot what she taught him. I'll bet you anything. Because I never knew of any mama that taught her kid to be a Hitler or a Mussolini or whatever. But that's the way they turned out. Well, they're going to have their chance. God is just utterly fair. So, yeah, we have it tougher. Well, you know what? There's a silver lining to that. We'll have a higher position as the bride of Christ himself. He's our best friend. He's our bread when we're hungry and our water when we're thirsty. And we'll be right there with him throughout all eternity in the New Jerusalem. Now these other people are going to have an easier time at achieving salvation than we do. But the reward will not be as high. So, okay, it's tough. So what? Things are tough all over. There are people out there in this world who are having it pretty tough right now. Tougher than you are and on a physical level. There are people all over this earth that are starving to death right now. And there are millions of Americans now who don't have enough to eat in summer in a starvation process. And the food banks are going down. And they're going to starve to death. Famine and pestilence and the sword. And they're going to have it pretty tough. God promises us physical protection, physical food, much men and cattle, and eat cattle, there'll be food, like Eden. And the rest of them are going to about be out there going through famine and pestilence and disease and the sword, and most of them die, and only a hundred million left by the time Christ returns, out of seven and a half billion. That's what Daniel says. He says there will be a hundred million that stand to be judged in the millennium. And then billions in the great white throne judgment. So yeah, we got it tough. 
but the world's going to have it tough too. See, they got to be softened up. they got to be humbled so that they will listen when we go to teach them. Now, you're already supposed to be softened up and become like a little child, humble and meek and no ego, no pride, no vanity, easily taught, easily led, like sheep, not backsliding heifers. There's a real difference. I've seen both and handled both. So, yeah, it's tough. we got to be like Christ. That's a tough thing to do. But he's there to help us. We have his spirit to help us, a comforter to strengthen us, to empower us, to inspire us. And all we got to do is get on our knees and ask for help. And we have the power of the universe in our hands. So that ain't so tough after all. He's there to help us. Help us when we're weak. Help us when we're not strong. Help us when we are in need. He's there for us. And he says, if we'll call on him, he will hear and he will answer. So, yeah, it's hard to be like God. But we got a lot of help. It even says, if we fall short, he is full of mercy and forgiveness and his mercy endures forever. He wants to forgive us. He wants to help us. He wants us to get there. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's what he desires. So, yeah, he wants us to overcome. And he's going to say, if you overcome, I will do. But none of us are going to get to be perfect before he comes. Or before we die, whichever comes first. We won't make it. But we have the blood of Christ and the love of God to make the difference. Count on that. So, okay, we did use it up. I'll stop there and we'll get to something else later. But, but let's be encouraged that we have a good chance, a great chance. And everybody else is going to be given a good chance as well. That's the plan of God. The Catholics, the Baptists, the Methodists, they're all wet. They think if you don't get baptized in this age, you're lost. So Jesus and the devil are in a hurry-up campaign to save all they can, and the devil's a-winning. That's a false picture entirely. God is going to win. He is successful. The devil's going to lose and go into the lake of fire forever. And most people who have ever lived are going to be in the kingdom of God. There will be a little neat weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who just will not accept God's way. But I don't think it'll be many when the love of God is shown abroad during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. So let's be sure we're there to help them. That's our job. Get ready to help.